Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest games of the blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us is Steve Crossman, or should I say BBC Radio 5 Live's Steve Crossman. Steve, pleasure to have you on the pod. It's a pleasure to be here. You look nothing like I expected, Marcus. <laughs> um, I, hope, I hope I've exceeded expectations. You have. I don't know what I expected your hair to be like, but did mm. I expect it to be this voluminous? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think, I don't know when this podcast is going out, but we're very much in the thick of lockdown, I should say. So that's why my hair is sort of running wild and free. Uh, and I'm glad that, uh, I, well, I assume you're enjoying it. I don't want to put, uh, you know, you, write your review for you. Well, but, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, the great thing is, it does feel like we'd, we'd, we're recording something with an early 80s Scottish striker. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, yesterday. My goodness. Today we go back to uh, the summer of 2016. Of course, the European Championships. It's the opening game for Portugal and Iceland in Group F. It ended one all. Steve, why have you chosen this game? Um, I've chosen this game predominantly for context and mainly because it gives me an opportunity to talk a lot about myself, um, <laughs> which I which is which is great for me. I mean, nobody picks a one-all draw if there's not a lot of context behind it. So I, I was lucky enough to go on an amazing journey with Iceland. I probably shouldn't say this about my own journalism career, but having been in journalism for 15 years now, the Iceland story is one of the very few things I can think of where you kind of felt that you were ahead of a story mm -hmm. because you quickly became one of those people who referred to Iceland like the band you liked before they were famous. Yeah. So, you know, like how I saw Arctic Monkeys for three quid at the Empire in Middlesbrough, that's how I felt about Iceland. And if anyone else wanted to talk about Iceland, I was like, you don't know. You don't know. Have you yeah. spent five days in an awful hotel on the outskirts of Reykjavik? No, you haven't. Mm -hmm. um, so it's mainly about context. But actually, the game itself was amazing. Mm. And I don't know when you want to get into this, but actually one of the best bits of that game was the mix zone afterwards and being in it for some of the great mix-zone quotes of all time. So it's a little bit of what actually happened on the day and a lot of what happened before it. Hmm. Um, would you say that Iceland now, everyone knows them, international, are they a bit like the Kings of Leon? Is that what you're saying? You know, kind of... <laughs> Jonathan, just trust me on that, by the way. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, 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 am... I just, just, to, just off my own bona fides with the Iceland story, uh -huh. I, I was there for the game against Croatia in uh, in 2013. So oh. I was also there at the basement. That, that was a playoff game, though, wasn't it? It was a playoff, yeah. And I was there yeah, to okay. talk about Croatia. Well, I, I <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I um, I'm I'm going to sound like a, a one of the a bit like yourself here. I remember looking at Iceland in in it was probably qualifying for for World Cup 2014, and I remember them getting a few results. Actually, they they improved quite a lot. And I kept banging the drum, and I did this at some Blizzard live shows as well. And I thought I want people to remember that I said this yeah. before anybody. I said I think pound for pound they are perhaps one of the kind of highest reaching international sides. And I'll be the first to say they had a, the population of about three hundred and thirty thousand, something like that. Luxembourg has nearly double that. Fiji does have more than double that. That's what you're dealing with. Um, but they were in pot five for qualification in Euro 2012. And, and and the teams alongside them in that pot were Moldova, Liechtenstein, Kazakhstan, Estonia. 
And they finished fourth out of five teams in, in, in that campaign, picked up just four points, had a negative eight goal difference. So, you know, nothing to write home about, really. Um, but it was qualification for World Cup 2014 that, that it began to change. They were in pot six for that, alongside Malta, Luxembourg and San Marino. Wales were, were in that one as well, by the way. They finished second in the group, which was fairly easily won by Switzerland, finished five points above Norway and, and Croatia beat them. Um, in the in the playoff, of course, Jonathan, that you were at. And again, for qualification for Euro 2016, they were in pot five. But Steve, this is there was much different feeling in Iceland for that qualification campaign for Euro 2016. Obviously, it was successful. But before they, they qualified, they seemed to have a plan. They seemed to have a strategy and they were going places. Yeah, well, they had this, um, obviously huge cliche but it, it it is there and was their golden generation and there's there's no questioning that but I, the thing about that that iceland story and that kind of rise is that the the topic that got most focused on was this idea that they built a load of indoor football um halls which were actually like aircraft hangars and basically because you could then play football all year round mm. that was why iceland were getting to this stage and that's where the excitement was from but when i actually went over there like most of the people i spoke to said oh that's just kind of a really sort of lazy way of explaining it because like your gilfy sigurdsons were mm. were of age by the time that happened it's not like they grew up in these these indoor football halls and that the the impression I got the first time I got there was the major reason they were all excited was because they had, you know, they had Lars Lagerbeck in there as the initially the manager and then the co-manager and having this guy who was steeped in, in major tournament history, he must've got Sweden to about five in a row or something like that, Lars Lagerbeck. And they, they just loved this Swede coming into Iceland to to almost make them great again. But the the funny thing was it's not like it's not like football was the national sport and they'd been obsessed with football for donkey's years and this is the first time they made it. They didn't even have football on TV in Iceland until the 1960s. <laughs> and they only got that because a fella a fella called um Bjarni Felixson who was like their Gary Lineker so like top pro turned broadcaster arranged for tapes of match of the day to be flown over to Iceland a week after the event so they could watch football. Um, and I went and interviewed him and I said to him, I was like, oh, I'd love to talk to you about how Iceland fell in love with football. And I was like, where should we meet? And he's like, let's meet at Bjarni Felixson. And I was like, but that's your name. And he's like, yeah, yeah, there's a bar named after me in town. I was like, right. So I went and met Bjarni Felixson at Bjarni Felixson. And uh, and he just told me this this story of how they fell in love with football. So it was kind of th- this whole di- idea of if you can play football all year round, you're going to be better at football is true. Mm. But Icelanders would have said at the time it felt like something that had been building for 40 years. And suddenly they had a group of four or five individual players that could actually lift them towards something. And it was all being shaped by this guy, Lars Lagerbeck, who... I just think anyone from that part of the world had massive respect for. So it's not like being from here. Like if a, if if someone from Scotland was put in charge of England, or you know, vice versa. Imagine the reaction. Mm. I mean, Jonathan, it, it is interesting. I mean, they they when they qualified for Euro 2016, it ended a run of 23 unsuccessful qualifying campaigns. Again, from the outside, if you hadn't really been paying much attention, you thought to yourself, "Well, this has sort of come from nowhere." But when you went over to see them against Croatia. I, I only sense... saw the game in Zagreb, to be fair. 
Oh, okay. But well, but you still saw them play in, yeah. in a crucial game. Um, did you sense that there was there was something going on there? Oh, d- yeah. I mean, look, they they pushed Croatia pretty close. I mean, Croatia were, yeah, they they comfortably won the tie in the end. But it wasn't sort of a, um, it wasn't a complete mismatch. You could see that kind of there was a a core of decent players. You could see they were very well organised. You could see there was a belief there, and you occasionally get this. I mean, I remember um, Armenia. Uh, when would that have been? 10, 12 years ago, uh, that they got relatively close and then they, they got gubbed by Robbie Keane handball against Ireland. And you know, once the once the pin hits the balloon, it, it all goes. And you, I did sort of think watching that playoff, I wonder if they're going to be able to pick themselves up again. But th- they were, uh, which I think suggests you know, how, how well organised, how well run they were. I mean, just talking about those aircraft carriers... Um, aircraft hangers, not carriers. That's totally different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they did need them at some point, of course, but that was, uh, <laughs> I've, was more uh, of a commercial thing. Yeah. I, I've played against the Iceland cricket team in one of those uh, in the Eidegger Johnson Arena. Well, uh, yeah. yeah, they they won the first two games. We won the third one once we got used to conditions. But they are they they're very big. Is my observation about them, and yeah. quite hard to play cricket on. But once once again they defeated an English side. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes they, they they won two one. Who could have yeah, seen exactly. that coming? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, I mean the, the the facilities are a part of it, but of course there's much more than that. I mean Arna Bill Gunnarsson, um, who was one of the the, the big uh, influences over the game over there, said that the three key factors in their recent success were the facilities, coach education, and obviously a great generation of players, and and they really have put a lot of work in though to the infrastructure um over there i mean they, they have 179 full-size pitches in iceland twenty-three thousand registered players uh, which is one full-size pitch in every in the country for every 128 registered players which sounds very very impressive and i'm sure it's probably higher than most of the average around the world and all the clubs playing in the top two divisions and most of the clubs outside these divisions have qualified coaches with UEFA A or UEFA B levels working in all youth categories from five years old and up. I mean, this is a serious operation, Steve. I think the stat around them is that they have more UEFA A and B licensed coaches per per capita than any nation in the world. Yeah. Um, and and that obviously plays a that plays a monumental part in in them getting to a major tournament because a lot of the people that I spoke to and you know the the actual players that I talked to. Um, you know that that when they were younger, they would have been coached by somebody's dad. In fact, weirdly, <laughs> because this was you know that I I went back there just after they qualified, and at this time, as you can imagine, everybody wants a piece of the Iceland story. Mm. So I went to the, there's a massive concert hall on the um, on the Greenland Sea. It's called Harper. It looks like a giant ice cube, and um, there was a conference going on there. And somebody got in touch with me from this conference and said, "Oh, we've heard you're in Iceland. Do you want to come and speak to?" any of the people talking at our conference. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, was well, it about Iceland? And they said, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, who's talking? And they said, oh, we've got David Moyes and Kevin Keegan. Love that. <laughs> so I mean, I come like, on. Right. Um, but then I thought about it and I was like, well, why not? So I went along and I did a bit of research and it turned out that David Moyes had actually done a bit of coaching in Iceland when he was a kid. Like he'd gone on a trip over there and done some coaching. So you can imagine that a really young David Moyes is actually involved in like a coaching exchange. And he was saying like, we went over to visit their facilities and they were taken to the Westman Islands, which for those that don't know, is just off the coast of Iceland. Not long after the, well, fairly 
recently in in sort of geographic terms since the volcano had erupted. So it's like we were just playing on pitches covered in black ash. Like you couldn't play football there. It was physically impossible. So that kind of gives you an idea of the massive gulf in change that they had over the course of 20 years. Um, Steve, did you did you speak to David Moore? I mean, yeah. Is he a glutton for punishment? He's in Scotland as a young lad. Where's he even colder than this? <laughs> yeah. What is he thinking going over there? I mean, I admire the, um, the, the, the sense of adventure. Yeah. I, 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 I honestly, I didn't, I probably should have done, I didn't ask him why, because I, I suppose I kind of thought, be careful about being mean about Scotland. But then he made the joke himself because he was talking about Iceland and he said, obviously, you know, they've never been to a major tournament. And he was like, but who am I to talk? They're going to be there in France and we're not. So so what can you do about it? But I do think there was a bit of a, you know, there's that kind of sort of underdog mentality that anybody from a nation who either haven't been to a major tournament or haven't been to one for very long mm-hmm. wanted to get behind them. And it was true of their neighbours as well. Like one of my abiding memories of of the actual tournament was Five Live sent me to the the not the mix zone the uh, the fan park in Nice ahead of the England game, and they were like, "You've basically become like Mister Iceland for us now." So go to the go to the fan park, and if something interesting is happening, you know, at halftime, we'll come to you, and you can get some fans on live. And I was like, "Great, no problem." So I went to the fan park, and about three hours before kickoff, it's rammed. It's just full of Iceland fans. They all left because you don't go to France as an Icelander, if you don't have a ticket. Mm, so yeah, I was yeah. just there in, in a fan park surrounded by England fans. And the only people there were Swedes. And they were like, well, we're just here to support Iceland, which is amazing, isn't it? Like, yeah. again, imagine imagine going to a major tournament as an Englishman just to think, well, isn't it great that Scotland are doing well? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, yeah, well, Jonathan, when Iceland... When they were in the process of qualifying for Euro 2016, they were in with Czech Republic, who went on to win the group. They were also in with Turkey, the Netherlands, of course, who failed to qualify, Kazakhstan and Latvia. So not an easy group, you know. And uh, they finished second, 20 points they've registered, and they they conceded just six goals in those 10 matches, which shows you just in such a short space of time, I think in your piece, Steve, that you said in in five years, um, uh, Lagerback, took them, you know, over 100 places up in, in the FIFA World Rankings. Mm. These were monumental strides for, for any team, really, but such a small team as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's very easy to, to look at what Iceland did and say, oh, yeah, this is this is why the expansion of the tournament from 16 teams to 24 was right, that it allowed teams like Iceland and Wales, who obviously had an impact on the tournament, getting to the quarterfinal and the semifinal, to allow them to qualify. They would have qualified anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they they finished second. And the top three in the group went through. They finished second and comfortably second. Uh, you know, the battle really was between Turkey and the Netherlands for for third. Uh, and and you know, Wales similarly. Um, I th- I think they, and I think they might have tailed off right at the end, but they knew they'd already qualified. So fundamentally, Wales and Iceland were two of the best sixteen teams in qualifying. Uh, the expansion of the tournament didn't help them at all. I mean, maybe it gave them greater belief that they're still aiming at three spots, not two, but. They they qualified absolutely on merit, not through some sort of backdoor because of expansion of the tournament. Mm-hmm. And, and do you know what? I, I, that's just um, reminded me that before that qualifying campaign, I was in Turkey doing a piece on the, the galatasaray Fenerbahce derby. And I interviewed a former, Tur- who was it? Rushdu. I think it was oh, yeah. Rushdu. And the line from him was, we just got talking about international football. And he said, oh, 
you know, we should be able to beat Iceland if they're also allowed to use their hands. So that is sort of the level of respect <laughs> that was had for Iceland before that qualifying tournament, even though they'd they'd gone so close to getting to the World Cup. Interesting. All right, let's have a quick break and then we'll talk about Iceland at the tournament itself. Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard, everybody. So then, let's uh, let, let's get to the tournament. So yes, I, I mean, not an easy opening fixture, Steve, against Portugal. Of course, we go on to win the tournament, but it, you, you look at that Portuguese side. I mean, the obvious ones are Ronaldo, Nani, and now sort of Moutinho and Gomez, and, and and so on and so forth. How confident were Iceland going into the tournament? Yeah, they were stupidly confident, and I think I <laughs> think good the, to hear. I like. <laughs> but do you know what played a big part in that was Leicester City, and that's one of the things I found when because it was just after they'd won the title. I, I went and saw, um, I, I met so many Iceland fans who would come up with the same line, and it was kind of annoying because I was making a documentary for the World Service, so you don't really want people to keep referring back to Leicester City when you're trying to talk about Iceland. But they were like, "Oh, we are the Leicester Cities of this tournament," and it and that became sort of part of their mantra but you know they just felt like what's the big deal why not was the mentality and they they just went there with absolutely no fear and I was really lucky actually for that game I think I probably got to about nine or ten games at that tournament but that was the only game I went in with the fans and um, I'd been given a ticket by um, a, a lady who had traveled to Iceland to watch their games even though she was in the presidential race so she took right. time out from campaigning, she didn't win, to go and see Iceland <laughs> play. That's how much it meant to the people of Iceland. And I'd, I'd interviewed her in Iceland and I ran into her randomly in Saint Etienne. And she was like, oh, we can get you a ticket. So I was like, great. But then unfortunately, I couldn't find her before the game. So I didn't have a ticket. And some Iceland fan tapped me on the shoulder outside the gate. And he was like, have you lost your ticket? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, here you go. And he just passed me a ticket. And he's like, come on in. And they just sort of embraced me. <laughs> and I went and watched the game with these fans. I was just like, you know, there was no like, mm. I can get you a ticket if you kind of slip me a bit of money or whatever. He was just like, come on in. And they just embraced it and they embraced everybody there and they mm. wanted everyone to be an honorary Icelander. Mm -hmm. And they just weren't bothered. They, they didn't go into that game thinking, you know, oh, this is Ronaldo. Oh, this might happen or that might happen. They just went in thinking... Why not? It wasn't even like the party atmosphere and whatever happens, who cares? They genuinely just thought, yeah, why not? We'll, we'll show up. We'll probably turn them over. Yeah. Well, they didn't have any fear, did they, Jonathan? No. I mean, of course, their first game in the World Cup was against what, Argentina mm. and they got a draw. So Lagerback had them brimming with confidence. Yeah. And I mean, you look at the start of that game and, and the first chance is, you know, is Sigurdsson cutting in from the left? They, I mean, I think Portugal uh, were weren't great in the group stage. I think had they played them later in the competition, maybe it would have been different. But they absolutely deserved at least a draw from this game. Uh, and, and I think as well, you know, it shows a level of their belief that even though they go behind, you know, we've seen it a million times in the FA Cup or whatever, the smaller team has a bit of a go, they go behind, a little belief drains away, and you know, it all sort of falls apart. Well, it didn't happen here. They went behind, they came back and just kept playing. And they had their methods, of, you know, their way of doing it, and they kept doing it, and it it worked. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was as simple as that, really. And you've mentioned the fans there, Steve. We have to mention, of course, the thunderclap. Was that the first time you'd seen it in that game against uh, Portugal? Yes, 
It was, I, can I just say, I love the fact that you're apologising for it, as if now any <laughs> time anybody says something obvious about Iceland, I'm going to go, yeah. ugh, the thunderclap. <laughs> let, let me tell you about the song Coming Home that they've yeah, been yeah. singing for 20 years, Marcus. Um, but, but you should Play Wonderwall. That's basically what I'm shouting. You know? <laughs> um, that was the first time I saw it. And actually, um, they told me they picked it up from a Scottish club in European football. It was, um, I forget, I think it might be... Motherwell? Mother, mother, I was going to say Motherwell, yeah. I think it was Motherwell. Um, that that's where an Icelandic club picked it up from. So that's where, at yeah. least in the eyes of Icelanders, the thunderclap started with, with Motherwell. But yeah, it was the first time I'd seen it, and obviously because I was in with the fans, mm-hmm. I got to be part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah, which was amazing. And then I think it's just really sad that like a nation like France, who've got their own culture, decided to nick it. Um, yeah, like you've got your own stuff. Just just leave that to the to the Icelanders. But then. Um, then the the goalkeeper who was unbelievable in that game, Hannes Haldorison, adopted the thunderclap to make a movie about the Iceland football team because, of course, he's a film director as well as a goalkeeper. Obviously, because why? Well, he, well, he'd, why, done, why uh, he'd done the video for the Eurovision entry one yes. year, hadn't he? That was that was yeah. that was my big fact about Iceland before the tournament. Mm. To be fair, if someone's going to cash in on it, it should be one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it quite I mean, he made a marvelous save from from Nani. Was it after sort of twenty minutes, point blank? And the, yeah. the way the game went, obviously Iceland had the first sort of effort, as you said, Jonathan, the first sort of couple of minutes. But Portugal then sort of started coming forward and they were showing their quality. And you thought to yourself, Iceland are doing okay here, but Nani scores after 31 minutes. And you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, okay, this is how we expect the game to kind of begin to pan out. Yeah, completely. Um, and, you know, that, that Portugal, you know, I'd, I'd, seen, I'd seen Fernando Santos' sides before. I'd, you know, I'd seen his Greece. And they're one of those teams who they're, they're not great to watch, but you know they're not going to give anything up. And obviously when they have Cristiano Ronaldo and Nani, the chances are they are going to score. So it, it sort of was... I have to say, I don't. I must have watched the game live, uh, but I, I don't remember where I watched it or... or you know, or, I mean, I'm watching it on TV. I saw I saw Iceland's third route game. I saw the game when they beat Austria, got the very late goal. Zagreb, maybe, you can say. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, I, I, I but you know, um, watching it back, I can imagine I would have been thinking, yeah, this is sort of how I thought it would pan out. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but the the Iceland fans, there was no sort of lack of noise from them, Steve. <sighs> I mean, it, it was it seemed pretty unbelievable, and it and it seemed like that they, oh, it's such a cliche thing, but that sort of twelfth man, that kind of the Iceland army, were there. It must have been amazing to be part of it. I mean, we talked a bit about it, but. To, to, to be among that in, in this side playing in their first tournament in their history did you kind of was there a sense of history about the game for them yeah definitely a, a crazy amount of of pride and also like when I went to Iceland you got the feeling that everybody knows everybody so four or five of the people that I'd interviewed when in Iceland I bumped into at the game mm-hmm. because because there's so few of them and so few were able to get tickets so that they Everybody just seemed to know each other. It was like it was like a club team. It was like a mm-hmm. club team where the away fans all kind of know each other because it's the same group that go away all the time. Mm-hmm. So it had that kind of that club mentality about it. And it, it atmosphere wise, the only thing that came close to it was I was at the France Germany game at the Velodrome that semi final, and that was like 
that was like being next to the band at a concert where you can hear the noise kind of reverberating in your chest. That was unbelievable. That was but, an amazing atmosphere. I mean, I, I remember that as one of the best atmosphere I've ever been in. It's a great stadium. It's a stadium that is set up for that, but also, you know, the context of it, it was, that that was by a long, long way my favourite game of that tournament was that semi-final. Yeah, and I mean, it, it for me, that would be second to the Iceland game. And I think that's just because with the Iceland game, I actually felt... Um, I felt invested just because I'd I'd properly fallen in love with the people there, which is possibly the biggest cliche that we've had of the day so far. <laughs> but um, but it's true, you know. You go over there and they're so welcoming, and it's like it's like when I worked in BBC local radio. Like I'm a Middlesbrough fan, but once I've been covering Rotherham United for about four weeks, I just really wanted them to succeed. And it, and it was the same with Iceland. You know, I'd I'd been there, I'd spent a bit of time with them, and you just wanted them to do well. And and I think everybody wanted that. And it was all they're almost like as well, the kind of, you know, the FA Cup third round story, because so many of the players, like we've just said, had second jobs. So, it was, you know, the, the equivalent was um, well, the, the co-manager, Hal Grimson, was a dentist, wasn't he, of course? And um, so, so there, was, there was just this there was this sense of sort of beautiful amateurish about them being there. So the fact that they then caused a couple of shocks and did as well as they did was just just perfect and you had the commentator as well who kind of oh, yeah. he he and i i went to interview him in their sort of group hotel the night of that game and he'd lost his voice it's the worst interview of all time <laughs> i was like oh how do you, you know I've, I've heard your iconic commentary and he was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like great what a world-class piece for the peak for the uh for the latest <laughs> Report just write it report. down, mate. Just write down all your answers. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's it's. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's funny when you say about uh, Hal Grimson because in your piece for the BBC, when when you talk to him, you know, it, it, into the in when it, when they get into the Euros, you you, you sort of say, oh, well, you you you're leaving dentistry behind now to focus on football, and he goes, yeah, sadly so. You know, and I <laughs> love that response. I loved it. He wasn't sort of thinking, you know, this is amazing. I've always wanted to be in football. We're going to the tournament. He was kind of like, yeah, but I, mean, I have enjoyed the old dentistry. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he was like. He, he had a wonderful turn of phrase as well. Like one of the first questions I asked him was like, you know, pretty simple question. What have you as a part-time dentist, part-time coach learned from working alongside this legend of European football? And it's always great when sort of people who, for whom English isn't their first language are better at English than we are. Yeah. And he said, he said, how do you say in that sort of Steve McLaren way? He said, how do you say I've dry milked him like a cow? <laughs> I was like, I think that's exactly how you say it. Yeah, that's, that's superb. It. Absolutely yeah. superb. Um, so back to the game itself, just after half time, Bjarnason, um, the ball comes into the box. He finds himself unmarked. I mean, bearing in mind you've got Pepe and Carvalho at the back for. Portugal, so you know they're not uh, inexperienced. There. Well, it's Fiorina loses him. Fiorina gets gets dragged under the ball, doesn't it? It's his mm. fault. It's a right back. As as mm-hmm. he, sure. he's misread the flight of the ball, he's got he's got sucked in, and leaves Bjarnason unmarked. But even then, uh-huh. it's all it's, it's one of those. It would have been very easy to go wrong. He's got loads of time to to line up yeah. the volley, loads of time to set himself to think of the consequences, and it's very easy to try and hit it too hard or to snatch at it. And he doesn't. He hits a nice controlled volley. And the whole thing looks incredibly confident. You know, it's like he's knocking in a one-foot putt or something. It's, it's, mm. And even the celebration is very kind of, of course I was going to score that. Yeah. I mean, Wrong end of the ground, though, sadly. Yeah. Wrong end of the ground. <laughs> well, I mean, you're nitpicking now, but it must have still been quite something to witness Iceland's first goal. Uh, it it was. Do you know what was really sad about it, though, is that the guy who had given me the ticket 
had just disappeared at half time to go and get some of those horrible sort of 1.5% beers that you were what able he, to get. What is he doing? And, and he missed the goal. Oh. And he came back with the beers with the... I've never seen a look on... <laughs> I mean, it just imagine oh. that, like, my nation have scored their first ever goal at a major tournament. This is amazing. I didn't see it. So I ended up describing the goal <laughs> to this to this guy. And he was gutted. And he was like, oh, 45 minutes still to go or whatever. And yeah. you're like, yeah. And then obviously it, it ended that way. But um, but yeah, I mean, the, again, like in terms of being amongst fans, mm-hmm. like I've, I've been amongst fans at some pretty ridiculous mm-hmm. moments in football, including when, when Borough twice came from three goals down to, to get to a semi and final of the UEFA Cup. Nothing matches what happened with those Iceland fans. You couldn't see the pitch for the for the amazing, you know, you know what it's like, like suddenly a 50 foot flag appears. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't know where it's come from and it's covering all of the fans. I, I was just, it was, it was incredible. And like you say, it wasn't just that he had so long to miss it and he had so long to think this could be our first ever goal in a major tournament. <laughs> the fans had that time to think as well. So uh-huh. they almost had time to, to worry about it not going in because <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was yeah. such a whipped ball over the t- and there's no good reason for him to have that time and space like no. especially oh, it's when you really consider- bad mistake for you. I mean, and given how well Portugal defended I mean okay exactly. they can see three to Hungary in the next game but after that given how well Portugal defended mm-hmm. you know it's it's a it's a bizarre goal for them to have conceded mm-hmm. yeah at, at the risk of making you feel perhaps feel a touch bad Steve I, I, when I was in Mexico the other year and I was talking to this guy who was at Mexico versus Germany the first time that he'd seen Mexico at a major tournament and of course Mexico won 1-0 this was in Russia I mm. should say and he said he just happened to be sat next to an Englishman who was of course supporting Mexico uh, but the English guy got the sense of occasion and said no 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 this is your first game watching Mexico at a tournament I'll get the beers in you stay right there I don't want you to miss a minute um, obviously uh, you took a different approach <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's funny about that is that... Well, I somebody watched... from Middlesbrough not getting around, eh? Not... <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what happened with that. He said, he said, do you want a beer? And I said, oh, is it that 1.5% stuff? And he said, yes, I went, I'm all right, mate. I'm fine. But yeah, okay. weirdly, that game that you've just mentioned, I watched that game with a Mexican at a sports bar in Moscow. And oh. I was sort of doing those kind of interviews with the fans as stuff is happening elsewhere. And he'd mm. done some lovely, he was the only Mexican there. He'd done mm. some lovely little interviews with me during the game. And then when when it happened and when they won, I went back and I was like, and I found him, here he is, the Mexican. This is live on the World Service to something like 90 million people. And he just went, and yeah, said the rest of that word, and I was like, "Amazing, brilliant, thank you very much." <laughs> oh, super! There was well, a lot of swearing in that mix zone, though. After that, after Iceland got the draw, wasn't it? Well, okay, so they they do get the draw. I mean, Ronaldo misses a header late on, straight at the keeper, and so on. But it, it, you felt that Iceland were gonna were were, were going to hold on for the point. And of course they did, which was which was quite amazing. So again, I'm sure scenes of celebration and pride and, and and all the rest of it. But you mentioned the mix zone a couple of times now. Go on, what what on earth went on there? Right. So and because um, these quotes are quite famous, and I and I've made the mistake of not writing them down, so I might I might get some of these wrong. But the the beauty of being in with the fans, but also having an accreditation, is because I could then go into the mix zone afterwards and sort of squeeze my way round and through. And the the first thing that happens is Ronaldo goes into the mix zone, and Ronaldo basically never stops like I was in the mix zone after they won the final and he didn't stop in the mix zone 
when they'd won the Euros. Yeah, he was too busy spotting those bugs off himself, probably. He didn't want to stay uh, in the same place. The, but I, honestly, I don't like insects. I did not enjoy it. That was the first like major final I'd ever been to, and I had the worst time. That was such a bizarre thing. I've never seen anything like that. Oh, yeah, I've done nine Cups of Na- African Cups of Nations. Never seen <laughs> yeah. anything like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, and the thing was, like, even even when I mean, people might not remember this, but I remember going up to up to my desk, and and there'd been this weird thing, the like, classic French bureaucracy thing, that even though the <laughs> the um, the press room at the Stade de France was absolutely rammed to the point that there weren't enough seats, so people sitting on the floor, it was incredibly hot, um, but they wouldn't let people out into the stadium, so so, so you could go and sit at your desk in the stadium. For ages, and we had to sort of beg, kind of UA for people. So, can you can you let us go? Because look at this, we can't. This is not safe. We can't work here. And we go up, and the whole every single desk is just covered in 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 butterflies or moths. I don't I don't know which I can't I don't know what the difference is. Um, and then even when we got rid of them all, and there was this crowd just kind of flying off. There was they. I I don't know if it was. Is it moth shit or like some <laughs> kind of residue left? Is this kind of black crumbly residue on all the desks it just got everywhere was, like for weeks afterwards I put my laptop down somewhere and there'd just be marks left on the desk mm-hmm. it was the most bizarre I think I know what happened though I think what happened was because most people know the, the Bella Gutman curse oh, I think cool. what happened is somebody cursed Portugal and said mm. Portugal will not win a major tournament until a plague of giant moths yeah. descends <laughs> yeah. upon the earth <laughs> well they, they, the theory was it was something to do with the sodium lights I'd use on the pitch that only you, did you hear this? That. No, so, of course yeah. I didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought being a journalist and all. <laughs> so you know how they, they they have sodium lamps to kind of you know, enco- know, yeah. encourage the pitch to grow at night. So it's okay. like the equivalent of sunlight, but at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'd had them on the night before the final, and all these sort of moths had sort of got confused by it because moths like light or butterflies or whatever they were. And they'd also congregate where these lights they were. They definitely weren't butterflies, by the way. No, they were not butterflies. <laughs> and, I wouldn't and... have minded a little red admiral landing exactly. on my shoulder. Yeah, exactly, oh, it's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> and then, yeah, when the lights get turned off, they're all just sort of left there. And then mm. they get disturbed when people sort of come out onto the pitch and in, out into the press box. And they, they get all sort disturbed. Of... Yeah. <laughs> Swarms, <laughs> millions of moths. <laughs> How are you going to link this back to the game, Marcus? <laughs> I, 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 I have Go no on, idea. segue test for you. Go on. Um, I mean, <laughs> obviously, you know, Ronaldo. He just did. He just sort of swat you aside nice. when you were in the mix zone, or, nice. or did he stop and talk to you? Well, he treated Iceland, the entire nation, like they were a bunch of annoying moths. That's what he, he did, didn't he? <laughs> he really did. Yeah. yeah, because he said something to the tune of, "Oh, the way they celebrated at the end, I thought they'd won the Euros." And I think he, he called them small, didn't he? He he mm. used the word to basically imply. You know, small country, small mentality, small result for them. It's, you know, he was understandably bitter because he wants to have a great tournament and it started with a draw against Iceland, which is not the way they wanted to start the tournament. But the, the best thing, as quite often happens in mix zones, wasn't what he said. It was then that was then put to the Iceland players <laughs> and they reacted in exactly the kind of way that that you would react if you don't spend much time in mix zones. Because obviously, <laughs> you know, the players who are Iceland players... Um, they've not been in that situation at a major event. You know, players don't really do mix zones if they're playing in the championship, or at least not at this time they didn't. So Carrie Arneson wanders, wanders in to the mix zone and uh, he's asked Carrie, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo has just described Iceland as, you know, 
a small nation. And he said, you know, you celebrated like you'd uh, like you'd won the Euros in that game. And of course, the response is, you know, well, Cristiano Ronaldo is entitled to his opinion, etc. What Carrie Anderson mm. said was well, tough shit. <laughs> 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 it's so good, isn't it? Yeah, that, that media training, as you say, yeah. that experience of just kind of, no, 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 it's not up yours, mate. And 30 know. journalists went, thank you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what else did he say? He said, um, he said, he, he said something like, yeah, he actually said, oh, you know, he just F's around diving about all the time. That's what he said about Cristiano Ronaldo. And mm-hmm. we, I think that was just great. And again, you know, it was just a sense of, you know, these are incredibly down to earth people. And they don't care about what Cristiano Ronaldo thinks of them. They really couldn't care less about. I did find that Icelanders are very sweary, though. They are very sweary. In, in their native language or English? Um, don't speak much Icelandic. So sure. I would certainly in English. Like I, I wish I could remember his name now. But there was there was a. This is the thing. Everyone who's everyone who's ever been to Iceland was obviously following Iceland. So if you played for Iceland and played in England, you were everywhere. And there was a guy who used to play for Stoke, I remember that, and Iceland, and he had sort of shoulder-length hair in your style, Marcus. And I was trying to interview him before the game. Thank goodness it was a recorded interview. Um, and uh, am I allowed to swear properly or not? I don't know. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah, yeah. I, okay. Of course you are. So um, I said, uh, so, I think his name might have been Peter. I was like, so, Iceland opening game, you've got Portugal. You know, what are you hoping for? And he said, well... <laughs> I hope we don't get beat seven fucking nil. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so, but that, but I found that loads, and I even like, I remember ringing up Joey Good Johnson to say, "Oh, could we just, could I just do a quick interview with you? It's for the BBC." Mm-hmm. And he said, "I've got a question for you." And I was like, "Okay." He said, "Is this a fucking joke?" And I was like, "Oh God, have I done something wrong? Like, was I supposed to mention money?" And he was like, "You're not really from the BBC." And I was like, "No, no, I am." He's like, "Why do you want to interview me?" It's like, Joey, you played in the Premier League and you played for Iceland. You're right in our ballpark for this story. <laughs> Do you not know how this works? <laughs> and then he was like, oh, great. He said, I'm really sorry. I'd love to talk to you. So, yeah, they're quite a sweary bunch, but um, uh-huh. but lovable. So Yeah, indeed. But, and you have to have an absolute heart of stone not to be touched by that, that Iceland team and what they did. And you can't even say, oh, well, unless you're a... You know, a Norway fan or a Swedish? No, they all—they all seem to get on well, as you say. The Swedish fans were in the in the fan park and uh, supporting them, and so on. It was—it was an amazing time. And obviously, they went on to beat England. But now, you know, they qualified for the, for the World Cup and and so on. They are um, a bit of a sort of a staple, if you like, on on the international scene. Certainly for the moment, anyway. Well, that—that's the thing for the moment, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. going to be interesting to see now that that golden generation has kind of is starting to move on, or in some cases has moved on. I think we will we will probably learn the answer to the question that people thought had been answered ages ago, which was that idea of what difference do those massive indoor football arenas make? Mm-hmm. Because they've got enough coaches and they've got great facilities, so they should now be able to produce really good players. But I suspect that's something we might find out in the next kind of five years. So it might be 10 years after the Euros that they got to in 2016 that we actually start to learn that, as opposed mm-hmm. to it having played a major role in in 2016 but you can imagine how much i just enjoyed lording that over people oh you think the indoor football halls of the arena let me tell you <laughs> i mean, I mean yeah, the, the, the truth then is you look at it, even like some of you some of like ajax who have you know an academy which has been absolutely the top of the game for 40 years 50 years and 
there you have ups and downs. You yeah, when you've got a population of three hundred thirty thousand or three hundred fifty thousand, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you're not gonna produce a team as good enough to qualify for the European Championship every four years. It's not gonna happen. All you can do is make sure that the years when you do get a decent generation, you're absolutely maximising their chances, mm-hmm. which is what putting in place the structure does. And I think that's where people yeah, they get people misunderstand what youth development is. It's it's not a golden ticket. What it is is sort of making sure that you make the best of what resources you have. And it's the other thing that I think will make a difference is that I think most people in Iceland for the first time around the time of the Euros would have said football when asked the question, what is your national sport? Because before mm. that, um, I, I interviewed a guy there called Jon Nahr, who uh, it kind of fits in with what I was saying to you before about Icelanders love to have two jobs. But he is one of their most famous actors and comedians. And for a laugh, he ran for mayor of Reykjavik and accidentally won and served four years as mayor of Reykjavik. (laughs) And I interviewed him because I just wanted to talk to someone who wasn't a football fan about it. And he said, oh, he described it as like gullible nationalism. So he said a few years ago, our national sport was CrossFit because we had one person who was good at CrossFit. (laughs) And then it became MMA. Um, And I spent quite a bit of time interviewing contestants from the world's strongest man. Because that was Iceland's national sport yeah, for years. That's what they were known for, yeah. Um, and I interviewed uh, Hafthor Bjornason, who who's the guy who also played the mountain in Game of Thrones. And um, th- those were the Iceland sporting superstars. And I think that is what getting to 2016 has done. It feels like football is now the national sport. And I remember this interview I did with Jan Nahr. He was like, we loved CrossFit and then we loved MMA and now we love football. I said, okay, so what is the national sport of Iceland? He said, well, why didn't you ask? It's easy. Judo. (laughs) (laughs) Are you concerned though? They didn't make Euro 2020 or 2021, whatever we're we're calling it. So do you think football could, could, could wane? I mean, it seems unlikely though in Iceland due to their recent success. I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, that that is what the history of the country is. They would need to find a new sport to be great at, though. So there would have to be something which really takes off. I, I think kind of. I mean, this is that's probably that's probably a question for an Icelander now, isn't it? But I, I would I would suspect that the the football anchors have been put in so deeply now mm-hmm. that that takes over. What they probably need is they need another Gilfy Sigurdsson, don't they? That's what they yeah. need. They need another Good Johnson, another Gilfy Sigurdsson, and. What I hope is that they just keep approaching football the same way. And as a good example of that, I went to the the squad announcement for Euro 2016 mm-hmm. and Lars Lagerbeck and Hamir Halgrimson had put together their own PowerPoint to announce it. Nobody did nice. it for them. They did a PowerPoint. Love that. So you just want it to stay small time. Because obviously if it gets big time, I'll just move on. I'll see you well, in the Faroe <laughs> Islands. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, is is with the Euros, uh, again, at the time of recording, they're a number of months away, who have you got your eye on? I mean, I'm, Finland would be would be an obvious one, their first tournament. North Macedonia. I was going to say, Finland, North Macedonia, Marcus, come on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, they've got over a million people. Well, suppose North Macedonia. If I was but, still uh, working for the World Service, I guarantee I would, well, I suppose I wouldn't be going to one of those countries because of COVID, but that would have been my next. I love those stories. Mm. I've been to do like, you know, the club from the Faroe Islands that are in the Champions League first round qualifiers for the first time. Just because you just run into great people. You know, I, I went to a game in Rijeka, Jonathan, when um, Rijeka were playing Olympiacos, could have got in the Champions League for the first time ever. I was just wandering around about outside and I was like, is that Bosco Balaban? 
And <laughs> this is what you can do. So that the small stories are always a, the best. It's a fantastic a stadium. That the old stadium in Rieko is a fantastic stadium. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great place. But those are the best stories, aren't they? The small stories yeah. are the ones which are which are a good laugh, and you can interview people. And they're not on guard because they don't think that you're out to get them, and they don't sort of say, "Let's take the next game as it comes." They say tough shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and because they haven't done a million interviews before, because for them it's still something fresh. They're not just sort of churning out the same old anecdotes. Imagine churning out the same old anecdotes. <laughs> oh dear, I do look forward to a Blizzard live show when the, the lockdown's over. Anyway, oh dear, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about this one. Um, really, really enjoyable indeed. Thank you very much for coming on the pod. Thank you. As you know, I'm. I, I don't know if you'll include this, but you should. I'm a massive fan of both of your works. So um, no, it's been oh, an honour. I've really loved it. Thank you. You, you, you too, Card. We'll definitely include that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. But it's goodbye from myself and Jonathan. We'll see you next week for another great game for football. 